How's it going, travelers? Welcome to Fantastical Faith, the podcast where I get a bunch of geeks together and try and find the little nuggets of truth within the realm of fiction. As always, I'm your host, Micah Tassi. How did Tolkien's realm come to be? What types of beings populated it before the ones we've come to know? How does the grandfather of modern fantasy spin these tales while injecting his faith into them? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, um, I am here joined by my two very special guests, Grant Swafford and Kayla Dubnik. Hello. 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 How are you, sir? Greetings. I'm quite good. Good. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Yes, like Micah just said, I'm Grant Swafford. What else would you you like? Oh, okay, sorry. My bad. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your story. I was born October 16th, 2002 to two parents in a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Fine, back it up. Um, I'm a junior. <laughs> I'm a junior psych major, communication minor at Anderson, and a big Tolkien fan. So I'm super excited to be here um, and talk about this. And yeah, that's just a little spiel of my life. Hello, I'm Kayla Dubnik. I'm also a junior here at Anderson University with a double major in criminal justice and human development and family studies. Fun fact about me: I grew up in England. And a lot of people believe that Tolkien got the inspiration for the two towers from two tower-like structures that stand in the center of Birmingham, which is where I grew up. All right. Well, it is a pleasure to have you guys here. So whenever I start these out, I always ask two questions to whoever I may be hosting. Uh, Well, I'm just going to read them off one by one. What draws you to fiction or fantasy as a genre? I think that one thing that really I enjoy about just fiction and fantasy in general is I see a lot of, and it's what we'll be talking about later, biblical elements throughout it. Um, You really, really see just like there are a lot of stories in the Bible and concepts about God, truth, goodness, beauty that like can't really be expressed the same way, I guess, except in a story. I've just been impacted by a lot of different fictional stories um, in just a really profound, powerful way have made me really rethink like things in real life, um, and also it's just fun. Like it's just awesome to really see how creative some people, like um, John Rolkin Rolkin Tolkien, are whenever they make like just a big fictional world like this, and just so immersive. Um, just the creative effort that went into that. I think that's just really, really a awesome work of art, and what I really, really enjoy. Yeah, I'm very similar in a way. I just like the idea of being drawn into like another world that someone created from scratch, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's very much a reflection of this idea that we're made in the image of God and what separates us from the rest of his creation is, like, our ability to create our own mini-worlds. And I don't know, I just, as a kid, I always found, like, fantasy to be an interesting genre because I like the fantasy animals. I'm not even, I'm not going to lie. I like the fantasy animals a lot. And I like the stories, kind of like what Grant was saying, Fictional stories can also be a reflection of real-life stories and can kind of give you insight into how the author might think or feel about certain things and can kind of, I don't know, maybe help you think through certain topics that are addressed in a story. All right, so barring that discussion, we're going to move on ahead, just kind of jump in because we got a lot well, we got a lot to cover and, the very, and a very good possibility to get way off track. But that's half the fun. I really just wanted to talk about the, the, t- the episode is entitled um, The Gospel According to Tolkien. 
Um, so I really want to dive into what that looks like and how we can draw parallels from both uh, from from Tolkien's works and how it can point us back to the overall gospel story, which hopefully we all know. But for those of you who don't, I think we should, we should someone we should probably explain that a little bit. It's a big topic. Well, it is. Okay. Um, but also really simple. Yeah. Yeah. So God uh, made man and uh, made the world in seven days. Uh, rested on the se- rested on the seventh. Uh, he created man perfectly in his image, but man rebelled against God, and committed the act of sin. Uh, we can get into original sin or whatever, but you know, you know, no, that's not a no. We're not going into that. <laughs> um, uh, then God came up with a plan to, therefore, save the world from its own sin because that's something that we cannot do. Um, so through an intense process of thousands of years and a lot of people. Um, a lot of people messing up. A lot of people messing up, yes. <laughs> but a lot of redemption too in that. Yes. Yeah. God sent his own son down to uh, live the life we could not and die for our sins. And then he died, and then, yeah, he died for our sins and then rose three days again, three days later. And then he will one day come back to. Uh, deliver us completely, and then we will live together, live with in perfect reunion with God forever. Which is what we had back in the beginning, before man fell. Yeah, so that's basic overview of the gospel. Um, I hope I didn't spout any heresies there. Um, it's far more complex than that, um, and there's a lot more that goes into it. And I would encourage all you listeners at home to. Uh, research it a little bit for yourself. If you don't know anything about the gospel, hopefully we can get you rolling on that train a little bit. That's part of why this podcast exists. So yeah, we're just going to jump right into Tolkien stuff, and hopefully we can go from there. Um, so we're going to start off. I have, a, I have this book, this very fancy book, The Atlas of Tolkien by David Day. If you guys if you guys don't know about this book and you're a fan of Tolkien, I would highly recommend it because it's basically a TLDR of everything that happens. Uh, David Day, shout out David Day. Uh, he made a lot of cool Tolkien-related books. Um, and also, go read Tolkien's books themselves because they are very good. Hard reads, but if you have the patience for it, I would very highly recommend. All right. <clears throat> Uh, So, this chapter is entitled, The Vision and Creation of Arda. In the beginning, the great spirits called the Anuir, wait. Anamar. Anuir? Anamar? Wait. I'm I'm reading Anuir. 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 Yeah, no, we're going to be butchering some of these names. In the beginning, the great spirits called the Anuir were bidden, bidden by Eru, the one, to create a great music. And out of the music came a vision like a globed light in the void. Eru Iluvatar gave this vision life and became a, and it became Ea, the world that is. Uh, the Enwir took, looked on it and were amazed, and many for this love of new pl- for the love of this new place entered it. They became the powers that were named the Valar and the Maiar. Men later thought of them as gods. These were the beings that shaped the world, which was called Arda. Into Arda, the Valar, the Valar and the Maiar brought many things of beauty, but there was also strife. One of the mightiest among them rebelled against Iluvatar and his brethren, and there was war. Let's break it down. Let's break it down. That was a very simplified version. Break it down real hard. That was a very simplified version of what that story actually is. Because if you read if you read the Silmarillion, there's a lot more to it. 
Yeah, as someone who did suffer, <laughs> no, not suffer, um, for someone who managed to somehow make it through all, all the book, and it took me like eight years, I think. It's um, serious? I, well, I got it when I was like 12, and I only, fin- I actually read it this summer. I tried when I was like 12, and I was like, nope, I got like 10 pages, and I was like, nope, can't do this. Um, but I think what's super interesting is that I don't remember if that book discusses it, but the idea of other Aeonur were not able to create of their own power. It was more entirely the work of Ea, of God, right? And he kind of invites them into the story. Because in this creation account, you see the world is created literally through song. Um, you see the same thing in Narnia with Aslan, which I think is really cool. Yeah, um, It's almost like operatic and just like really beautiful, this idea of like, singing things into existence. I think that's so cool. But of his power, he's creating this world, and he's inviting all the other Eunur into it with him, and kind of, like, they can help kind of shape the story, but again, they can't create of their own power. And we're going to see later, like Micah said, some go to um, Earth, it's not Earth, Middle Earth, whatever the word Arda. is. Arda. They go to Arda, and they get to shape it, too, a little bit, but they can only shape it, they can't create. And then Melkor is another one, um, essentially Middle-earth's version of Lucifer, because he wants to create, right? He wants to create for his own purposes. So in the book, if I recall correctly, you see basically three songs going at once. You have Ea singing his song. You have the rest of the Eunur is basically like a backup choir. And then you got uh, Melkor singing like death metal or whatever he's doing. <laughs> I don't know. He's like just wrecking shop. And just really, really corrupts this creation that's been made. And because of that, like, he ends up on Arda and really just continues to spread his corruption there with what power he's been given. I find it interesting, too, in the accounts um, that the orcs themselves are made uh, as a perversion of the elves. Because the elves are created as, like, I, I w- like the perfect being almost. Um, yeah, oh, they no. were the firstborn of okay, creation. Okay, that's right, um, the firstborn of creation. The, uh, yeah, because the dwarves and the men were, it was different. Um, but yeah, the elves were like light, right? And you have different like tribes, basically, of elves. Like some of them more sea elves, more star elves, all that. But they all worship life and light. or uh, Like that's central to their culture and to who they are. Uh, meanwhile, orcs, yeah. Um, the idea, I've read before, one of the ideas is that like it was they were literally elves who were just tortured and corrupted slowly and made into that and then just bred. Um, and that every single being that Melkor has in his stead is just a corruption of something good, right? Like he's not able to create his own things. He just is taking something that's good and twisting it for his own purposes. I mean like Sauron and Mongolian, um, all of them are different. They were already there. But orcs and wargs and all that, just corruptions of something that was good. I also find it very interesting that from the very beginning, Melkor makes himself out to be like this very, very, very prideful being and like believing that he was better than everyone else and he could create a better creation than um, Eru and all of this. And yet he always remains in the shadow of Eru, if that makes sense. Like, his song was the quietest of the three. And, like, even when he lands on, um, what is it, like, Arda? Arda. Arda. Yeah. Even when he lands on Arda, he spreads lies and deceits in the shadows. Like, despite his pride, I just always found it ironic that he could never bring himself to just, like, full-on 
um, oppose the light and full on oppose Eru. He always had to like slither around and do his dark deeds. Um, yeah. And one, just like a quick clarification, is that like most of the big beings have like different names. So Ea is Eru. Like they're elven names, and then they're like they're given names, like Dorvish and, like, names, and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like Melkor is also Morgoth and all that. So we might use the names interchangeably. Yeah, um, it, it gets a little confusing. Yeah, just a um, little bit. So Melkor, Melkor and Morgoth are the same person. Yep. Um, I'm going to s- stick to Eru. Same mm-hmm. dude. Easy. And then, <laughs> like, if we're talking about, like, the gospel reflected in Tolkien, I, like, this, that's a very obvious reference to um, the devil and the fall of Lucifer. And again, I, I, I always found it ironic how Lucifer was born from pride and like his evil desires came from pride, thinking he was better than God, and yet he can't bring himself to actually directly oppose God, and instead slithers around on the dirt, um, taking the coward's way out, trying to spread lies and deceit. And you see that just not even through him, but also through Sauron with the creation of the rings, which we'll get into in the next episode. I'm not going to jump ahead too far. I also find it really fascinating that different things were used to like the different things that you were used to light the world at that uh, during that time because you had the two lamps um in the beginning and like the very beginning they were destroyed during the first age yeah. there was a big battle what was it called the um uh, i think it was the scourge of valar or something like that but basically they get knocked over fire goes everywhere everything gets burned up and it's really bad it's really really bad and then the valar just kind of dip because everything's on fire so, and meanwhile, Melkor's like, yo, this is pretty, pretty cool, pretty cool. I'm just going to hang out, going to build up my kingdom okay, so with the flames. Oh, this is actually really helpful. There's like a whole yeah, no, chronology thing in I here. This is it, really helpful. No, because you got to read it from oh, all this way. Okay. All right, yeah, so. For the audience, <laughs> I'm dumb. <laughs> Arda was shaped, and then uh, the Valar and the Maiar enter Arda. Then there's the first war. Arda is marred, and then Melkor is expelled. And then the and that's when the lamps go. So I think Melkor was expelled to Middle-earth because the the Valar were still chilling in, um, in Valinor, what would later become the Undying Lands. So Melkor was kicked all the way to Middle-earth as we know it. And then the lamps were built. Uh, Spring of Arda, I don't really know what that is. This is also like a side note. But I always found it really funny how he provides like this very detailed explanation for the creation of the elves. And for the doors, it's just like, doors. Well, I'm pretty sure, weren't they created out of spite? Yeah, I think, no. No, 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 no. no, no. It was impatience. It was impatience. That's right, that's right. Was it the dwarves who was created? Was it, okay. I'm trying to remember. It was Aule. It was Aule the Smith who created the dwarves. And then was it the wife who was in like, nah, my trees and then created the ends. Oh, yeah. You know what oh, I'm yeah. talking about? <laughs> I think that was Yovana. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. might be right. Yeah, yeah. Wait, no. Was Yovana? I'm trying to remember because I know two things were created in tangent. Like the husband created one thing and they started chopping mm-hmm. down the trees and the wife was like, no, my trees, bro. And then created um, the ends to guard that, the trees. That sounds right. Because the... Um, oh, it was Modern. man... Well, wait, hang on, no. The Ents were created by Eru through Manway yeah. at the request of Yovana. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> this is according to Reddit. <laughs> yes. And we know Reddit's always, <laughs> always. right. 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it was in response to Ali's. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought. Yeah. Like there was such disruptive little dudes that immediately something had to be put in place to like counteract their diabolical deeds. Little whimsical guys. But the dwarf story is really cool though because he does. It's um. Wait, what was it? Was it Aule who built them? Aule the Smith. Yes, Aule the Smith. Um, because if I remember right, Eru had said yes. Eventually, we're gonna do this. But the smith, he was just kind of like impatient. He was like, I want to make my people. And Eru sees it and he's like, bro, what are you doing? He's like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like trying to hide the dwarves behind his back under nothing. But I think it's really cool though because Eru sees they weren't like forged. It wasn't like Melkor, right? It wasn't forged as like a power move or anything like that. It was just like the beauty of creation. So he just was like, hey, they're going to take a nap for like a few centuries and then they'll wake up. But, you know, all in my timing. Yeah. So that happens. Um, then there's, wait, what were we talking? We were talking about the lamps, right? Yeah. So there was the lamps. And then during this time, uh, Melkor is just kind of kicking around in Middle Earth, gathering an army. Uh, and he builds his fortress, Utumno. Uh, and then he launches an attack, rest of the Valar, and destroys the lamps, which then, I don't know, burns the, burn, sets it, fire to the like world? It's like a giant fire. Gotcha. Like big fire. And the Valar just kind of peace out for a little bit. Got it. Yeah. Actually, I think that's when they go and build their island with the trees, if I remember right. Yes. Yep. Then they, yeah, that's when they plant the trees on Valinor, I believe. Which, for my movie fans, is where you get the Gondor idea. Because, really? no, because there was a remnant of the tree, and if I remember right, they planted it, and that's where the... Thank you. Oh, oh, that's the tree of Gondor? Or oh, it okay. was like, after what happens that we're about to talk about happens to these trees, they're able to plant a little bit of it, and it's gotcha. kind of a remnant of gotcha. that light. Okay. Even though there's also the similar... Anyway. I want to know, like, I want to see, like, a really good artist rendition, or, like, a movie or something like that, of how the trees gave light. Um, I think that'd be, that'd be I cool. They showed it in... The unspeakable rings of power. We don't, we don't oh consider those canon. If I remember actually. right, no, no, we can speak about rings of power. These guys are haters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not a hater. It's just not that great. It's but not okay. Not I great. will agree. It's there was great. one part but, with a flashback sequence okay, of the that show part where it showed cool. the Balrogs, and I, yes, it was one part I really liked. And if I remember right, it did show it, the tree. Because it was, was it the? I feel like that was a different tree, though. It, I was think it, it was a different tree. Yeah, because there was the. Because they were. Are you talking about the scene where the Balrog was attacking the tree? It was like a flashback. It was almost like fully CG yeah, flashback about. sequence. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the yeah. That was the Balrog fighting over, over the tree with yeah. that yeah. random elf, and they like poured their powers into it. And then because of, because they were fighting that tree, then the the roots and the power that was going into them caused Mithril to be formed. Yeah, I think. yeah. No, because it wasn't it something like lightning struck the tree. Lightning struck the tree while fighting they were the Balrog fighting and over Mithril the tree. Was created. Point is, I don't know if it's the same tree. I don't By think the way, it, was. it was cool looking. It was cool. I it's really cool. I like Balrogs. They're really cool. They are. Yeah, they are. My computer, my computer lock screen is an artist rendition of uh, Gandalf facing As the Balrog. It's really be. cool. It makes Do they actually have wings? Uh, uh, I like to think so. <laughs> kind of cool if they did. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, the trees mm-hmm. show up. Um, which I guess you could kind of equate to, you know, the Garden of Eden. Like the trees. I mean, because there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then there was yeah, the tree these, of life. Yeah, these were more providing light than yeah. life to the land. So it's a um, different different idea, but yeah. I guess you could yes. draw that parallel if you yes. were reaching a little bit. I 
almost kind of equated them. Like, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I kind of thought like spiritual warfare, question mark, question mark. Because the trees were drained of their light when they were left unattended. If that makes sense. Like everyone was kind of like doing their own other thing, got caught up in their own little worlds, and they kind of left, forgot about their duty of protecting the trees. And that's when Melkor swooped in with the spider and drained it of all of the light and corrupted it. I don't know. This was like, I wrote this at like 1230 at night. So like, forgive me if this is a bit of a stretch. But I was also thinking it could be like a reflection of our own lives when we sort of get distracted by things of the world and forget, I don't know. I like light to, we have a light to tend. Exactly. We let it shine. But anyways, and then it's this idea of like, it's when we let our guard down and distract ourselves and fill ourselves with worldly things. That's when like, because, again, the enemy's a coward, and so that's when he's going to, like, slip in and try to corrupt us. I don't know. It was a late-night thought. So Late-night thoughts are also very valid. Oh, so valid. Can we share that story with the audience? Because I don't think most people know about that. Like, contemporary audience wouldn't know about the, about the trees and how that all went yeah, down. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, yeah. Go you can, for it. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Let me pop off. So, um, among the Ayuner... There were um, basically two different types of beings who descended. There were the Valar, which were the to the people little g-gods, though not really, um, which would be like Melkor and some of them. And then there were the um, Maiar. And so there was one named Ungoliant. And Ungoliant's like a giga spider. So one day you got Melkor and Ungoliant kind of chilling. And she's like, hey, I like eating light. He's like, bro, I know just the spot. So, they kind of sneak in, and like Kayla said, the Valar were pretty much just kind of having, not like a party, they were just kind of chilling, they were taking a nap, yeah, they were just kind of chilling in their house, and then they kind of sneak up, and um, Ungoliant like goes up to the tree and just kind of, boom, no more light juice. So then Ungoliant's getting like from Giga Spider to like Super Giga Spider, like, you know, at the end of Mario Bros. Wii. Oh, and, like, my gosh. Koopa, when Koopa, like, flies in, and then Bowser's, yeah, Koopas. that's what happens. And so they're they're going, and, um, oh, wait. Oh, shoot, you might be right about the Summerall. Well, Hang on, you're right. The Summerall's were crafted and then mm -hmm. put in the tree? Yeah, I believe I so. I think. Because Morgoth then had the Summerall's, mm -hmm. and they're leaving. And he's like, oh, these are really cool. Then um, Mongolian's like, let me eat them. Okay, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, the Silmarils were like these th this triad of jewels mm -hmm. that the Valar had. I can't. What were they made from? What made the What made them so valuable? Hang on. Let me. I don't remember. But an important thing is that there's a lot of destiny. I'd almost say surrounding them with family lines. A lot of prophecy surrounding them. They were crafted by Feanor, if I remember right. Yes, yes. from the yes. essence and of the two trees of the Valinor. Valinor. Yes, and Feanor is a big deal because you have a lot of people in his family tree, like Elrond, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of big name people. And really, a big thing in the Cimmerillion that's it's part of what makes it kind of hard to follow sometimes is that you do follow the lineages of these big people and kind of see how the actions of their great-great-great-grandfathers impacts generations to come. And so there is a curse surrounding the Cimmerils, um, kind of a thing, not quite like the ring, but those who hold them kind of covet that power for themselves, and you see the consequences of that. Different from the ring, more of these are beautiful things, so people are going to fight over them. And so you see Ungoliant and 
uh, Morgoth chilling in this valley. And she's like, hey, give me the Silmarils, bro. I'm hungry. He's like, no. And so then she attacks him. He does a scream, but it's like a mega scream. And all the Balrogs charge in, and they fight. But it's such a crazy scream. I still want to see that in a, minute, in a movie. <laughs> it's such a crazy scream that it like echoes in the valley for all of time. What? But anyway, army of Balrogs come in. And Balrogs, by the way, are also Maiar. Fun fact, if I remember right. At least, or at least um, the leader is, what's his name again? Starts with a G. Garwog. Uh, oh, oh, um, Gothmog. Gothmog. Oh, I Gothmog. was close. Yeah, Gothmog. <laughs> Gothmog, if I remember right, was a Maiar. Uh, Maiar are very confusing because you have the five wizards, um, and you have like the Balrogs, Sauron, the eagles. Were they? Yeah, the eagles were. Well, the eagles we see in the Lord of the Rings movies were descendants of the okay. original eagles. Okay, gotcha. Do the eagles have sentience? Yes. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're essentially like demigod figures. Nice. All of the Maiar. Yep. Yeah. Ever wondered cool. why they didn't just take the eagles? Stop. Stop. <laughs> Tolkien's response to that was Shut up. Shut yeah, I have up. seen that interview. It's one of my favorites. Since we're on the topic of the Silmarils, let's segue into something that I know Grant is excited to He's talk doing about. Doing a little hype dance right now. Juan. Juan. Uh, okay. Uh, Juan. We're going we're gonna we're gonna segue into talking about Baron and Luthien. Yes. So Grant, okay. would you like to For anybody who has never read the books or has only read The Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, you have to read Baron and Luthien because it is so good. Do you want to tell the whole story? Uh give a TLDR for the TLDR. Okay. TLDR. There's this guy named Baron. He's a man. There's this girl named Luthien. She's an elf. She's chilling in the woods, and she's singing. And he's like, wow, that's a woman, and she's singing. So he goes up to the bushes and watches, as one does. And she's like, ah, that's kind of creepy. He runs away. He keeps doing it. And she's like, hmm, that's actually kind of romantic. Eventually, it's kind of, he like comes out, and he's like, because she's dancing and singing. Um, and so he comes out, and he's like, Luthien, teach me to dance. And she's like, all right try to keep up and so he tries to keep up and they're dancing and they dance like all the way to her home and they go and her dad's there and he's like the uh, king of the empire and he's like what do you want baron he's like hey i want to marry your daughter and she's like oh that's kind of sweet he's like no you're a man and he's like okay i have an idea here's what you do if you bring me the Simmer- the silmarils you can marry my daughter now a bit of context the silmarils are currently in morgoth's crown in his big fortress. So, not a good situation to be in. Anyway, he's like, okay, bet. Um, so there's this guy who kind of owed his family a favor, Baron, and so they team up, get a squad, and they go. And along the way, they run across a tower, and it's ruled by a sorcerer who later turns out to be Sauron, and he locks them away in the dungeon because they're like disguised like orcs. And so he's like, hey, tell me what's up. He says, no. So Sauron is like, here's what we're going to do. Every day I'm going to send in my wolf, and he's going to eat one of your people until one of you tell me what's up. And so he does, and they die and die and die and die. And Luthien, meanwhile, is like, ah, this can't be good. (laughs) She just has, like, weird vibes. So she talks to her mom, who's magic, and she's like, hey, mom, how's Baron doing? Because you're magic. And she's like, oh, he's, he's kind of going through it right now. Not going to lie. <laughs> and so her dad is like, my daughter, you can't leave this house. And so he locks her away in a big tower 
tangled style. But then it gets even more tangled style because she talks to her people and she's like, bring me a gold bowl with water picked up at like sunset and then a silver bowl with like wine picked up at sunrise or something like that. And she like dips her hair in it and then it gets super long. And she uses <laughs> what? And she puts magic oh. on her super long hair so that when it touches people, they pass yeah, out. I was about to say, it gets wilder. So she, yeah, what it in gets, the world? No, 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 we're just getting warmed I haven't, up. I haven't it just heard gets warmed story. up. We're just so. getting no, 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 started. No. Okay, yeah, yeah, we haven't even gotten to Juan yet, my boy. Anyway, so she throws her hair out the window and knocks everybody out with the magic. And then she uses it to climb out the window and then makes herself a cloak with super disguise powers. And so then she goes to Sauron's palace. Meanwhile, let me think how this goes. Oh, along the way, she gets stopped by this kind of creeper dude. And he's like, hey, I want to marry you. She's like, dude, we just met. Anyway, um, he locks her away next. But then he has this giant wolfhound named Juan. But he's really cool. He's like immortal, theoretically. And he's like really big and really strong. And he's like, this girl seems really nice. I feel like this isn't right. So he breaks her out. And they go together. And they reach Sauron's um, fortress. And Juan's like, hey, here's the deal. You stand out there as bait. And let Sauron just keep sending out his people. I'm just going to keep eating them. And so he does. And then in the end, um, Sauron realizes what's happening. And there's a prophecy surrounding Juan that he can only be killed by the biggest wolf in the world. And so Sauron, fun fact that you don't see in the movie, is a shapeshifter. So he's like, okay, I'll just turn into a mega wolf and we'll hash this out. He tries it. He gets smacked and he retreats. Palace is cleared. Which is really cool, because you see like this moment of like they break out all the prisoners, everybody's kind of released from their chains, their bonds, all that. Um, and meanwhile, there's Baron, and Baron's buddy has died, which is really sad. And then they get over it, and they go like kind of dancing through the woods, and then they get to her kingdom, and Baron's like, oh shoot, I don't know the Silmarils, we can't, we can't do this, I'm sorry. And she's like, bro, you just almost died. He's like, bro, I know, but I made a deal with your dad. So she's like, all right, we got to go get them. So they go to more... Morgoth slash Melkor's giant fortress. They kind of sneak in in disguise. They pick up basically like a bat carcass and a wolf carcass from Sauron's palace and put them on with magic. Anyway, (laughs) so they sneak in and she reveals herself before Melkor and she's like, hey, I can sing and dance and stuff. He's like, okay, I'd like to see that. Like, good luck. (laughs) <laughs> so she does, but she's using her hair and her magic voice, and everybody's falling asleep. And then Morgoth, super embarrassing moment for him, passes out, falls off his chair, and the crown kind of falls off his head. And then Baron um, steals a Silmaril, but then he pulls out a knife. It was like some kind of dwarf knife or something, and he like tries to get off another Silmaril, but it like snaps the knife. And so everybody's trying to wake up. They run out outside of the fortress. There's the Mega Wolf. Like, oh shoot, what do we do? And so there's Juan, and there's um, Luthien with the magic hair, but Baron's like, no, I've got this. So he charges up, and he's like about to, literally about to just deck the mega wolf in the face. <laughs> like, he throws a punch. And then the, the wolf just chomps his hand off. Oh, no. But it's also the hand holding the Silmaril. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> now it's in the stomach of the wolf. But it's pure light, and it's a creature of darkness, so it kind of burns his stomach, and he just kind of, like, goes insane and runs away. And like, ah, that was weird. <laughs> and he still no. has the Silmaril. <laughs> no. And then, and then they all go home. But we're not done. They go home, and they go to Luthien's dad, and they're like, hey, how's it going? How's it been? And he's like, bro, you didn't bring me the Silmaril. And then Baron's like, oh, but I have. I said I'd come back with a Silmaril in my hand. 
It is in my hand. <laughs> but, but incidentally, it's incidentally my hand is in a wolf's stomach. It's like, okay. He's, he's kind of like, oh, I kind of... <laughs> Kind of, kind of respect that, and so he's like, "Okay, you can marry my daughter." <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, "No, no, no, Take we're not notes, done." Gentlemen, and they're like, like, "So how are things in the kingdom, BT Dubs?" He's like, "Well, they kind of suck. There's been this mega wolf <laughs> wreaking havoc." <laughs> and Baron's like, hmm, "I have a feeling I know what's going on here." It's like an elite task force made up of Baron, Luthien's dad, Juan, and some random warriors, right? And it's like, hey, the wolf's stomach is always burning. He keeps going to, like, get water. And so we're going to just meet him by the river. So they lie in wait. They see the wolf and Baron and all of them, like, charge it. um, And they're fighting and all that. And then Juan manages to kill the thing along with Baron, stabs a sword through it. But... Tragedy of tragedies, Juan dies. Oh, no. What? Fulfilling the prophecy. But even worse, Baron is injured. Again? Yes. Bro Again. goes through a lot. <laughs> it's kind of useless. But anyway, kind of funny moment anyway, because they're talking to Juan. They're like, oh, man, you're dying. But yeah, Juan can talk, but he only talks three times in his life. Fun fact. So this is the third time. And so they're like, Juan, you're dying. This is so sad. He's like, yeah, and they're like, but at least your master's alive. He's like, bro, he's literally dying right next to me. Get him a doctor right now or he's going to be dead. <laughs> a rough translation of what it says. They get him back to the place, and um, they're laying him down on the bed, and Luthien's like, oh, my gosh, what's happened? They're like, uh, mega wolf. Um, and so then he's, like, dying, and he's, like, um, gives, he finally gives um, Luthien's dad the Silmaril because they cut it out of the wolf's tummy. And he's like, ah, but you had something far more beautiful before. And it's like a super romantic moment. And then he dies. Oh. He Boo. dies. Dang. And that's where the legend ends. But, or that's where the story ends. But the rest is relegated to legend, as the book says. So basically, in one version of the legend, Luthien goes super depresso mode. And she literally goes down to the underworld with, um, remind me, which of the Valar is the... Underworld one. I have look no it idea. up real fast. All Trying right. to get full accuracy here. Underworld. I want to give Valar this, the full story. Uh, was it Mandos? Yes, yes, I believe it's Mandos. So Mandos is not inherently a evil creature, right? He's not like a Grim Reaper. He's just kind of in charge of the realm of the dead, and this being the realm of the dead for the like humans. And so Luthien goes down and kind of explains everything and like the story of their love. And for the first time in his life, Mandos is actually like moved to pity. And he says, okay, I'll cut you a deal. We can bring back Baron, but that means that he will live out the rest of his days as a mortal and you will be mortal as well. And so that means that one day you'll both come back here and you won't get to live out the immortality of an elf. You'll be as a human. And so she takes the deal and it says they spend the rest of their lives like, in the hills, and in love, and people don't really see them, but then they do some epic stuff that I barely remember is super complicated, evolving the Silmarils again. But anyway, they have their happy ending. And then, yeah. Hooray! Hooray. Yeah. Except for Juan. Poor Juan. <sighs> He's such a good good boy. Yeah, that's a fun story. I like yeah, that one. I like it a lot. My, immediate, my, my mind immediately 
went to David and Saul. This is a Bible story, by the way. You started that story and was like, oh yeah, dude wanting a wife out of his league. I immediately thought, what did Saul ask David to get for Saul, it? Saul guy. wanted 100 Philistine foreskins. <laughs> Do you think David managed it while any of them were still alive? I don't know. Would that have been like a war crime or something? Did they have like war crimes in Bible times? And if so, would doing that to someone whilst they're still alive count as one? Hey, you can't violate the Geneva Convention if there's no Geneva Convention to violate. Anywho, so in the story, uh, David basically wants to marry the king's daughter. And he's like, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And Saul's like, no, uh, you can do it. Or he doesn't say no. He says, yes, you can do that, but you have to kill 100 Philistines for me. So David goes out and kills 200 Philistines. <laughs> Uh, and he gets to marry his daughter. So that's that's what I thought of. And then David, you know, eventually sired Solomon, who, sol- who sired a lot of people, who then sired more people, and then eventually came to Jesus. I'm trying to think what else we could draw. You can really, you can see kind of the um, arrogance of evil, like Caleb was talking about earlier. You see whenever Luthien goes into the lair of Melkor, just how he's like, you know, I can't be overcome. I'm in my own kingdom, right? Like, who are you? Like, what are you doing? And I think it's funny how it's like, from that day on, the orcs and everybody else would like privately like mock him for that. Like, man's just passing out and sprawled out on the floor unconscious. Not a good moment for, uh, not no. a good kind moment for Melkor. This is kind of an aside, kind of. I think um, what's what, what really adds to the story is the uh, inspiration behind it. Because um, John Rokin saw himself, really, as Baron, his wife, as Luthien. And for those who don't know, she died well before he did, right? And so, how do I put it? It was almost him writing his love story um, as he described Luthien. Like, there, there, you can look it up, some beautiful interviews where he's, like, describing how, to him, she was everything Luthien was. And that's how beautiful she was to him. I don't know if he saw the second half is their eternity in heaven to come or whatever else, but like just dealing with that grief of death, but then the joy afterwards of an eternity of just the two being together, reunited once again. I think that's part of why I really love this story. And it's also just really, just really cool. It also is very picture. It can also be very picturesque of like, you were talking about how like the Tolkien interviews of him, like describing how he equated his wife's own beauty to the beauty of, uh, Luthien, and like you could draw, uh, draw a parallel to that with like Song of Solomon or something. Not like, I mean, I don't know. I've never of course stop looking at each other like that. Hey don't, yo, don't give me that look. Oh. You know exactly what I mean. But like the love that the love that's described in Song of Solomon is meant to not just draw a picture between the love between you know husband and wife, but also how God loves us as well. Can I read a few key verses? No, you cannot. If you're interested, please go read Song of Solomon. Stop suggesting things that I am not suggesting. We're suggesting reading the Bible. That is true. Song of Solomon is in the Bible, bro. It is in the Bible. You'll also learn a lot of new pickup lines. Key takeaway verse, do not awaken love before it's time. Yes. Yes. Stick to that. Yes. That's the key takeaway from that book. Yes. I mean, other things. But, like, that's, that's the most applicable, I think. Bouncing off of that, time and time again in the Bible, um, Jesus refers to us as his bride. 
knowing that even more so knowing that Tolkien wrote this story based on his relationship with his wife is all like still a reflection of what God means by that and what he means by that kind of love that he's describing when he calls us his bride. And this idea that he would like do anything to try to bring us into himself. Agape. Yes. Agape. No, if you wanted to go. Uh, yeah. I know that's one thing you love. Yeah. No, I love. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, go for it. Sorry, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the kind of word um, I was getting at. Like the Bible refers to different types of love, and this is another facet of love that God refers to in the Bible. Yes. I'm a big fan of the fact that Greek has several words for the, for the, for the word love. Um, and they all mean different things. You can, here, you know what? Actually, I'm going to pull this up so I can read it off because this is one of my favorite things about being a Christian. All right, so the four unique forms of love are found in Scripture. They are communicated through the four Greek words, eros, storge, philia, and agape. Um, eros is characterized by romantic love. Uh, storge is familial love. Uh, philia is brotherly love. And agape is God's divine love. Again, going back to Baron and Luthien, you see them in a state of philia. Or no, eros, sorry, eros. But also, I mean, Baron commits himself to this quest because he loves her that much. And I feel like that's equatable to how how much God loves us, is that he will go any distance and lo- lose a hand or die to bring us closer to him. You can also kind of see it when, what's her name again, Lori? Luthien. Laurie, when Luthien goes... It's okay, she had another uh, name, too. Shoot, okay. You can Gwendolyn. also kind of see it. When Luthien goes down into the underworld, cuts a deal with the guy in charge of it, sacrifices her eternal life in order to save the one that she loves. I always, like, it's, it, it can be kind of a stretch, but it does kind of, like, reflect Jesus stepping down coming to earth, coming to meet us where we're at, and sacrificing his life so that we may spend eternity with him. I think you see it also, like, to jump way ahead, Lord of the Rings, like Gandalf. I mean, even Frodo and Sam, right? I mean, you see <laughs> with Sam so much, in the sense of it's, very, it's made abundantly clear to the company at the start, you may not and probably will not make it back from this. But they were willing to do it for the love of friends, family, the world, goodness, etc. You see that kind of agape love. Gandalf, just again and again, throughout the entirety of this narrative, really, in this light versus darkness, evil kind of seeking power for itself at any cost, and often um, so that it can control others and kill. And you really see among the heroes, um, really doing what they do out of love for another person. And sometimes that's their downfall, right? Like with Feanor and a lot of his lines, sometimes they're too wrapped up in their own lineage and all that. But you see among the heroes, they have a reason for doing what they're doing. They have a reason to fight. And usually it's another person or God. All right. Um, there is one more point I wanted to hit on before we wrap. I wanted to talk about the fall of man and how it relates to the fall of Numenor. Hey, yo, that's what I wanted to talk about. Hey. Uh, Numenor was, the, was this island that was created, was it after? Hang on, let me consult, let me consult the ancient texts. 
Okay. All right. So this actually this this event happens in the first age of the sun. So this is after Ungoliant eats the trees, um, and then there's like a ridiculous amount of time that's just the world is in kind of darkness. But then it's rekindled by the stars. Then the elves wake up, the doors wake up, and all that stuff. Uh, but with the sun, with the rising of the sun, man wakes up, and after this, Melkor and Melkor is expelled into the void, never to be seen again. Or so we think. Yes, so then the War of the Jewels is ended, and then the Valar create Numenor, which is an island in the middle of the ocean. It's a star-shaped island, I'm pretty sure, that is populated by men that are that have longer They're lifespans. They're like gifted longer lifespans by the Valar. Isn't it because the like Valar. they helped them out? Or so, I think so. Like I they helped so. him out in a battle. Like I'm pretty sure. They're like, yo, that was so cash money of you. Here's a little bit more life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically it. Um, I, however, there is a there's another snake in the grass. We've got Sauron, uh, who was actually Morgoth's right hand man when he was oh, still kicking. Another fun fact: isn't it Elrond's twin brother? Or like Elrond's brother that becomes the first king of Numenor. Because he gives up his immortality as an elf. Because um, Elrond is technically like half elf. So he has like an elf parent and a human parent. Pretty sure Elrond was like, yeah, I want to keep being an elf. But his brother was like, nah, bro, I want to yeah. be a human. And then becomes the first king of Numenor. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, that, that actually, that sounds right. Let me... What's his name? Elros? I maybe I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. I just feel like I read that somewhere, but yes, yeah. See, I knew it. Uh, so then at some point, I think the Numenorians were like, "Hey, we're cool," um, and they got kind of a little too big for their britches, and uh, Sauron came in and was like, "Hey, you should attack the Undying Lands because that's a good idea." And they were like, hey, let's do it. And they do. And they fail miserably. <laughs> uh, very miserably. But as punishment, uh, their entire island sinks. Only a few escaped to uh, Middle-earth, and they found the city of Gondor. The thing I find most funny about this story is that, or at least from this book, um, it said that Eru sunk the island. Not the Valar, Eru himself. So we're talking like the top dog of the of the Arda They were doing Pantheon. a lot of bad stuff. I'm Just pretty sure, if I remember correctly, Numenorians made their way to Middle Earth, uncovered the discovered the elves, and they're like, "Oh shoot, we thought we were cool, but they have eternal life. What? They have immortality. We want immortality." And then they got very, very, very jealous and greedy. And prideful, so that led to them doing a lot of uncool stuff like worshiping Sauron and committing human sacrifice and all this jazzy stuff, which is why the top dog, the DM of the universe, if you will, stepped in and decided to flood the island himself. So, in that way, I kind of saw a lot of reflection of a obviously the flood, you know, but then also Sodom and Gomorrah, like something 
very similar happened there. They were doing, that's, this is a story from the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities, and they were doing a lot of not great stuff, like killing babies and infanticide and genocide and worshiping idols and a lot of not cool stuff. And so God was like, hmm, I, I don't know if I'm really feeling this. I'm going to send divine fire down and burn you guys all to a crisp. So there's more to the story than that. Now, I was just going to say as a kid, when the woman turns around and gets turned to salt, that traumatized me so much. Because we had like the little felt acted out things, like the little felt Bible story. Sodom and Gomorrah is in Genesis Correct. 19. Would like to. It's a wild story, it so should definitely read it. It is a pretty wild it. story, but it's also really it cool, is. especially the part where God almost spares them. You see the Tower of Babel in the sense of, like Kayla said, they see the elves and they're very jealous of this power. And yes, they basically start a cult, human sacrifice, all that to Sauron. Um, and when Micah said, like um, a couple of them escaped, those were actually the faithful um, because there was a small. You see it. It's almost like the people of Israel, too. Maybe you see a small um, a remnant. Yes, a remnant um, who are still faithful and who are spared from this. The reason they were going to Valinor was I think they wanted immortality, or there was some power or something that they wanted there, right? And they, again, Tower of Babel esque, like we can ascend to the position of God, and God is, and we can even go Garden of Eden, like God is withholding something from us. And so we are going to seize it for ourselves. And they kind of reap the consequences of I've that. I've always found it interesting how in both the works of Tolkien and the lore that he created and the Bible itself, time and time again, you see this underlying sin of pride and how when you let that go unchecked, it can lead to so many other messy things in your life. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's all, that's, I got. All that's all I got. That's all I had. Um, yeah. There's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, more there's cover. a lot more we could go in. There's a lot more we could go into, but I feel like that's a good place yeah. to end it. Can we end in song? End in song. Yes. been fantastical faith um <laughs> uh we will see you guys in the next episode um yeah. next next episode we will be diving into sam yes uh more sam of the, the idea more we're gonna be moving away from silmarillion we're gonna move into the hobbit and lord of the rings so a little bit more familiar territory but i hope you all enjoyed uh and tune in next time